everybody, and welcome to Que Golazo, a daily CBS soccer podcast. I'm your host, Luis Miguel Echeray, and I am so excited. So excited to welcome you to episode one. We aim to give you the latest news, analysis, commentary, betting tips, conversation of culture and social on and off the pitch from the beautiful game. I am so excited. We have an amazing team right here with our CBS talent. But before I introduce them to you, I want to tell you a little bit more about this show. From the Champions League to Europa, the Premier League, La Liga, Bundesliga, Serie A, Liga, A, the Americas and beyond. This is all about the global game. We're going to try to cover it all. It won't be easy. But I know that we can do it with this team. And every single weekday, we will try and give you the best and the very best. But the other part, I think, guys, that I want you to know is that this show, just like the game, is about you, the fan. So I want your input. I want you guys to follow us on Kegolasso Pod on Twitter. I want you to go to Apple Podcasts on Kegolasso, a daily CBS soccer podcast, Spotify and Stitcher. And I want you to ask us questions. If you go on Twitter on Kegolasso Pod, tweet us your questions. And if you go on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a rating and a review with a question. And hopefully, we will read them on the show. But the other thing that I want you to do is I want you to video them. Where's my phone? I want you to grab your phone and I want you to go horizontal. Make sure that you have good video and audio quality. And just ask us a quick questions about anything, your team, a league, a player, a tournament, anything. And hopefully, we will have them on the YouTube show. Make sure that you tag Pod on Twitter and send us your questions. So it's a lot of homework. I want you to go on social, on Twitter, Pod, and send us questions via video. But I also want you to ask us by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts. There's a lot, I know, but we're worth it. Trust me, we're worth it. All right? Now, without further ado, let's get on with the first episode. Well, I promised you talent and I delivered. We have Jimmy Conrad and Jonathan Johnson, CBS talent, absolute legends. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Jimmy, let me start with you, former MLS Defender of the Year, former United States Men's National Star. I remember that tackle against Lionel Messi. We all do, my friend. How are you? I'm doing well, and I'm very excited to get this going and, and to be sharing this opportunity with you guys is something special. Jonathan is a French football expert. He's our CBS insider, the European star, the Paris legend. Jonathan, how are you? Very, very well, my friend. Thanks a lot for, for having me on. And likewise, like Jimmy, just you know, really excited to get going. Jack Grealish in the background is always going to be a plus <laughs> with me. Fellas, let's begin with the most recent news. We're going to talk about the international break. We're going to talk about Europe uh, World Cup qualifiers as well. And JJ will give us a lowdown on PSG, etc. But let's begin with the most recent news. Cristiano Ronaldo, Weston McKennie, testing positive for COVID-19. Obviously, health uh, issues aside, this is a big, big problem for Juventus as they not just look to continue their Serie A campaign, but also the Champions League begins next week on Tuesday. Two major stars, of course, Cristiano Ronaldo, we know so well, but Weston McKennie just entering this frame. You know, let's begin with you, Jimmy. What do you think of all this, uh, you know, in terms of the recent news and as we look ahead to the week ahead? Well, when I think about Cristiano Ronaldo, I think of him as a robot. So for him to actually get coronavirus makes me think, wow, I guess this guy is human. 
And so that's, I don't know. I don't know what, what kind of hope does that give us, give the rest of us? Cause that guy's like the perfect human being. He's so sculpted and ready to go. And he takes such good care of himself. So obviously that makes me a little bit fearful. I, I know he's going to have the best doctors. He's not shown no symptoms. So he's going to be fine. Obviously we, we, we wish him well from a, from a sporting perspective. I actually was sad to hear that Weston McKinney outside of him, you know, contracting the illness now is going to miss a lot of games too. Cause this could have been an opportunity for him to continue to get valuable minutes and continue to prove he should be in the starting 11 on a regular basis. So I'm disappointed on a couple fronts with regard to Cristiano. I mean, Portugal, I don't know how deep you want to get into this, but they got a little golden generation going on underneath them. So when he doesn't play, they still can take care of teams and they did it again today against Sweden. And then, uh, with regard to the, the Serie A season, he misses one. He misses Dynamo Kiev in the Champions League. Had it been Barcelona, and that might have been a little bit different, but he's not going to miss too much valuable time. So I think they're going to be fine. I guess I'm more disappointed for McKenney because I just feel like he could have taken that opportunity with a guys, couple guys out, including Ronaldo, and really put a stamp on things. So, JJ, when we look at this, and not just uh, Ronaldo uh, and Weston McKenney, but also we had to think about the teams that – they faced beforehand, right? France being one the past weekend. Um, and then, you know, looking at, uh, as Jimmy mentioned, they just beat Sweden as well. But, you know, what do you make of all this, especially from a European perspective and, and how we're looking now at a schedule that is getting busier, heavier, not just the Champions League, but we're also looking ahead to November international break. Uh, what's your take on this? Yeah, obviously it's a big concern, uh, you know, to, to have players like this testing positive and then finding out sort of after the fact, uh, you know, after, you know, shirt exchanges have been done, that sort of thing. I mean, just looking at the the French point of view, you already had uh, Anthony Lopez and uh, Jose Fonte, uh, you know, both testing positive, both of them based in Lyon. Uh, but then you've got Cristiano Ronaldo shop, uh, swapping shirts at the end of the match with Eduardo Camavinga, uh, you know, so immediately this, you know, this potentially sends it to, you know, sort of two or three clubs in France, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's without even considering the, the players that, uh, you know, the rest of the players uh, in the France squad, the rest of the, the Swedish players as well. Uh, you know, so, yeah, it, it is a hugely concerning moment. I mean, you just look at everything that's going on around Europe at the moment, speaking from the French point of view, uh, you know, lockdown tightening over here all the time, uh, you know, matches becoming more and more inaccessible. Uh, and, you know, the like you said, the schedules just keep piling up domestically, internationally, uh, you know, and you've got the players dipping in and out. I mean, Let's look at it this way. If uh, COVID can get Zlatan, then, you know, COVID can get anybody. It's, uh, you know, it really has been, uh, you know, showing, it has shown in recent weeks that it's completely, you know, uh, it's, 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 it's untouchable. Anybody can be gotten to. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's massively worrying the, the, the spread effect, uh, you know, especially if we see more and more players testing positive between now and the next international break, because it seems like, uh, you know, European matches and international duties seem to be the most likely uh, matches to, to go and spread uh, the disease. What I want to jump in and say is, what's the breaking point? Because at some point, I think you have to absorb a couple players getting sick. It just seems like that's the trend. But what is that number? Is it 10 of your guys before you shut it down? We're having evidence of it here in MLS in the States with Colorado Rapids. They're going to miss seven games because of so many positive COVID tests. But they had a large number. So I wonder what that number is 
for big, big European clubs because it might interfere with meaningful competitions as they take out more key players. It's really interesting. I, th- I don't think we found that line yet, but I'm curious to see where it goes from here. And, you but know, yeah, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about World Cup qualifiers uh, from South America in a second. But, you know, uh, Raul Rudias from Peru uh, couldn't play against Brazil because he had coronavirus. There's so many players in MLS, as you mentioned, Jimmy, as well. You know, we're talking about Salomon Rondon as well, a Venezuelan player who plays in China. He wasn't allowed to travel. Let me ask you this. Let's start with JJ. Do you see November international break happening at this point? I mean, you know, obviously, the money needs to keep coming in. World Cup qualifiers in South America need to keep happening because it's such a marathon season. What do you make of November? Like, if, if you were just to take a guess right now, like, would clubs, are they going to be more disciplined when it comes to letting these players go? Because also, we're entering flu season. We're entering a colder climate. That's another problem. JJ, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I completely agree with you. I, I do think it will go ahead, but I, I think, you know, the, um, the international federations are going to be pushing ahead with this, you know, quite pig-headedly. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of resistance from the clubs, but ultimately, you know, I don't see, uh, you know, clubs sort of, uh, you know, trying to strong arm the, the, the national team. So I do think the players will still end up going out on international duty. And I do expect the, the situation to worsen. Uh, going back quickly to the point Jimmy was making a few moments ago, you know, what is that breaking? points i mean speaking solely from the the french football standpoint basically clubs are able to register a squad of 30 players uh and you know basically the only way that uh matches are, n- are not going to go ahead is if uh you know such a large number of, of them are, are compromised that you couldn't even put together a squad with say like four or five substitutes or if the the goalkeepers there's a string of goalkeepers who suddenly test positive and you don't have an adequate replacement for that okay there's the joker transfer window that exists in france but you know that wouldn't be able to 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 sort out you know sort of more than three four clubs uh for, for for goalkeepers it's you know it's just an unrealistic ask so that in terms of french domestic football at the moment is is the the the, the breaking point and Going back to the to the November internationals, uh, you know, I, I I think perhaps that might be the moment where where football has to reevaluate whether it's prudent or not to to push on and try to to continue the season uh, throughout the the Christmas period. Jimmy, any lasting thoughts on that? I mean, especially from a North American perspective, right? I just find it to be interesting. I think what we've learned in this international break is that by opening up the borders and allowing your players to travel across so many different countries has made them more susceptible to contracting the virus. And I think that's something that needs to be looked at. I know there are some clubs. I know Jesse Marsh in particular at RB Salzburg. He has not allowed some of his players to go back to their home countries to play in some important games. He was trying to be thoughtful about all that. I'm sure obviously playing for your country is a dream. You never want to take that opportunity away from those players as a coach. But you also have to see the bigger picture. And I think that's going to be a little dicey, I think, going into November. What did we learn from this tra- international break that we're going to, going to you know, parlay into that? I think things have just gotten a little bit looser as everybody's gotten. A, this goes across all sports in this country in particular. As everybody starts to get comfortable with sports being back, everybody's relaxed a little bit. We're not as hyperactive with regard to making sure we're washing hands all the time. And maybe this is just a reminder of, hey, if Cristiano Ronaldo can get it, if Zlatan can get it, anybody can get it and now we got to be a little bit tighter on some of these restrictions again and that's going to probably bum out a lot of people but i think that might be the way forward 
And going back to that that point that, that Jimmy was making about Jesse Marsh not allowing some of his players to go and join up on international duty, I think there has to be a line between the international duty that some of these players are going to take part in. If it's a qualifier for, for a major event like a World Cup or, or a Euro, then yeah, you know, I think it's understandable that the players would want to, to go and play for their national team uh, and also that the national team would want their best players available for them. But what I don't get is the insistence at this moment in time, uh, you know, with all of these international friendlies, you know, if there was a moment to sort of drop international friendlies off of the calendar for a while, you know, just, just to be responsible, uh, you know, it seems like now is the, is, is the right time to do that. Yeah, let me just add one thing, all right? This, this situation, this pandemic, to both of your points. One, we're getting a little too arrogant, I think, you know, thinking that we finally combated this. And two, this is a detail-centric chaos, meaning that in sports, you have to think about all the details. So when I'm hearing things like Camavinga swapping shirts with Cristiano Ronaldo, why are we swapping shirts in the first place? Why are some coaches leaving their respective boxes? You know, there's so many little breaks, like Cristiano Ronaldo had a huge dinner with the Portuguese team the day before that. It's just tiny little details that I think they, they can do better in order to make sure that nobody contracts this virus. And to both your points, we need to remember that we can't loosen up. Listen, it's a damn shame that in the first episode, we have to begin to talk about this, but it's a major deal. So people get it together. What do you guys have to say? If you want to tweet, do you think that the November international break should happen at all? Should we see crowds in stadiums at all in 2020? Make sure that you tweet at us and give us all your questions and comments. Moving on, people, there was actually some soccer that was also played as well. Let's not forget the international break may be boring to some, exciting to others, but it's always relative. It all depends on what you're looking at. Let's begin in Europe. Let's stay with the Nations League and perhaps in Euro qualifiers. Uh, you know, Andrei Shevchenko's Ukraine beat Luis Enrique Spain one nothing, which is a sentence I thought I would never say, not at least until I realized I was so old. Uh, there were other results as well, you know, a boring yet somewhat effective England kind of through the way. Um, Jimmy, what were some of the takeaways through uh, these Nations League and Euro qualifiers that you can take? Yeah, I think the one that I want to highlight is Germany. They were down to Switzerland 2-0. They came back and fought uh, a few different times to, to ultimately even up the game at 3-3. But they haven't been playing particularly well. When you look at their roster in particular, they have the depth. They look very similar to France in so many ways where they have a couple guys that could start, you know, third, third stringers could go on and start and do, do fine. But for whatever reason, their manager, Yogi Love, just isn't getting a lot out of these guys. Now he's trying to move on some guys that have been around for a long time, Boateng, Hummels, Thomas Muller. It's not included anymore when I think he could make a strong argument as to why he should be still in the team. Cause he's still doing it with Bayern Munich. I don't know what's happening with them. And for me, it just speaks to, a bigger conversation and narrative that I'd like to get into it with you guys is how long should a manager be in charge of a national team? For me, going through it with Bruce Arena, when I was, thankfully, he picked me for uh, his second time around when he was coaching the men's national team from the 2002, and then I was part of the 2006 World Cup team. I was fresh with him, so it was fine. I wasn't part of the 2002 cycle, but the guys that had been, you could just tell that they'd heard this voice before. They'd been in these pressure situations before with him. Not to say malaise sounds very strong, but it just seems like they relaxed a little bit. They were comfortable. And I feel like a manager shouldn't have a job with the national team for more than four years. One World Cup cycle and you're out. Yogi Love was tremendous. Obviously helped them win in 2014. They were awesome in World Cup qualifying going into 18. I don't even know if they lost the game. And they dominated with their B team in the 2017 Confederations Cup. Everybody's like, ah, oh, Germany's winning the 18 World Cup for sure. 
and then they get bounced in the group stages and they really haven't been the same since. Is it a transition because of their old guys that did do the business in 14 and having these young guys come up and the young guys aren't ready? I don't know, but I think it speaks to a little bit of a conversation of maybe they just need to hear a new voice. Yogi Love's been a part of that for so long. It might just be time for a change. And that's what I kind of took away from that result. And that's not just isolated to them. We see that a lot happen with a lot of different countries around the world. You know, that's a really good question. Should managers have kind of half a precedency, right? Uh, you know, allowance, right? Just four years and that's it. And then you go. Then again, there are examples like Uruguay and Oscar Tavares, who, yes, they didn't have a great uh, round of qualifiers right now, but, you know, they almost surely are a guaranteed spot in the World Cup. You also look at Fernando Santos at Portugal. I mean, they may not play the greatest stuff. It does help that you have Cristiano Ronaldo, but they've been pretty successful in recent years. But then look at England, who pretty much changes managers every time we blink, right? And what have they done since 1966? I mean, Euro 96 was the closest one. What do you think, JJ? Uh, I mean, I, th this is a really, really interesting point because it, uh, you know, involves or it concerns so many different national teams uh, that, that we could talk about just based on recent results. Uh, yeah, obviously, we can bring England into the discussion with Gareth Southgate, you know, he's coming in for a lot of criticism. Bizarrely, England, you know, managed to beat uh, the top ranked team in the world, Belgium, uh, but then they... Go and, man go and lose to, to Denmark at home 1-0. Uh, you know, now they're struggling to, to be in the top two places in the in the Nations League group. You've got France who, I mean, okay, you know, they're doing quite well with uh, Portugal at the top of their Nations League group at the moment. But, you know, since the since the World Cup victory, uh, it's, you know, there's, there's, there's been a sense of, you know, surely there's something more that this France team has to give, given the amount of talent that they have available to them. There's a lot of frustration uh, towards Didier Deschamps and, you know, sort of the lack of experimentation uh, that he has towards teams. And then you look at like an upcoming nation, for example, Norway, they've got so much, uh, you know, good young talent coming through. You've got Haaland, obviously, uh, you've got Odegaard as well. Uh, yet that generation didn't emerge in time for them to qualify for the Euros. So now you've got to pose the question, you know, uh, should, should Lagerback be, be moved on and somebody else brought in in order to oversee this next generation of players? And, you know, I feel uh, going back to Jimmy's point about uh, Yogi Love, you know, when you have success with the national team in, in such a big competition as the, as the World Cup, or the Euros, you know, there's always going to be a temptation from the, from that respective federation to keep that coach on. I mean, basically, unless a coach who's won a tournament like that gets bored, uh, you know, and, and fear, or feels the need to return to club management, uh, you know, it's very unlikely that they're going to walk away from that position. Uh, federations are also in a tight spot because they have to think of the two-year cycle that it takes for qualifying for these events and then actually getting there. Uh, you know, so it, it, it is a very... It's a very complicated situation because, you know, I, I take Jimmy's points and I completely agree. There are quite a few national teams that feel like they go stale after a while. Germany, definitely one of them. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, since the takeover of Frank de Boer, things aren't looking too promising for the Netherlands either. So there's a lot of national teams right now who are struggling to sort of find the, either the right fit with the coach or find a coach that's willing to experiment enough. Because for me, something like the Nations League is perfect for, for a team like France to completely experiment, uh, you know, go with players who wouldn't normally uh, sort of be, you know, Didier Deschamps, a choice uh, players, uh, you know, yet it's the basically the same players being selected week in, week out, uh, you know, and I think that co will contribute towards, you know, what Jimmy said earlier, them basically being too accustomed to hearing the same voice saying the same things over and over. Yeah, what I would jump in and say is if, if the federation and the coach were on the same page, 
because uh, you make some great points. And there are plenty of examples of, of longstanding national team managers that, that have had success and have mentored many generations of players. Uh, but if you both came in and said, listen, this is, you, that's it. You just get four years. I feel like the approach of the manager would be different. The players would, would approach it different. The federation would approach it. There would be no hard feelings. So if Yogi Love went on to win the World Cup, like, great, thank you for your four years. We're just, it's, this is how we do it. We just bring in somebody new. And I think if you lost the emotion of that a little bit, I think, I think it would be easier for everybody to absorb. But then, well, yeah, you're right. Once they win something, it's harder to get rid of. I mean, Didier Deschamps is a good example. When you're talking about him, he's probably like, dude, I won a World Cup. Yeah, get off my back. I can do whatever the hell I want. I'm Didier Deschamps, you know? I've done it as a player. I've done it as a manager. What else do you want from me, you know? So, so he probably thinks the criticism's unjust a little bit and that he deserves as much rope as he wants because of the success that he's had. And I would be hard to argue with him otherwise. But, but I think if everybody kind of came into it saying, hey, this is the deal, um, then it'd be a lot easier to kind of understand the project in a more meaningful way. Well, everybody, what do you think? Should a manager of a national team have just a maximum of four years, no matter what? I'll tell you what I think. Every single international break, get a new person in. <laughs> Rotating. <It'd> be beautiful. <laughs> so we're going to uh, say goodbye to JJ soon. And I wanted to just make sure that he fills us in on France. Uh, you mentioned uh, the Nations League, such a good opportunity for this ridiculously loaded French squad to just play around. And Deschamps just come, just basically having a vacation and just checking out what talent he has. Uh, talk to us a little bit about France, uh, this international break. How, how did you see them? I mean, obviously, it's been a very mixed bag. I mean, you look at the Nations League games, uh, the draw against Portugal, okay, very unimaginative, but, you know, it keeps them sort of in there at the, at the top alongside them, uh, both on 10 points after the, after the win over Croatia. Uh, and then the, you know, goals galore in the, in the friendly against Ukraine. We obviously saw that phenomenal uh, acrobatic effort from Eduardo Camavinga. So, you know, there is opportunity for new players to come in and impress every now and then for France. I just find it, a little bit frustrating that, you know, guys like Camavinga are only getting given friendly matches at this moment in time or cameo appearances from the bench in the Nations League when I think, you know, they could be benefiting from being played from the start and stuff like the Nations League because, you know, let's face it, I mean, okay, he, he got himself a goal uh, against Croatia and it turned out to be the match winner, but, you know, Kylian Mbappe is not necessarily gaining that much for, at this moment in time from being involved in pretty much every French match. I mean, he's, he's somehow expected to have played, uh, you know, against Croatia on the Wednesday night PSG will be in action away at Nîmes in Ligue 1 on the Friday night. I mean, you know, it's almost irresponsible if Thomas Tuchel puts him out on the pitch. Uh, you know, yet PSG, you know, short of creative talent going into that match with Dan Di Maria being suspended. Uh, you know, so this brings us back to the, this conundrum that people are facing with the current situation. Fixture lists being so ridiculously overloaded. And it, it just felt like a breath of fresh air watching France in that friendly against Ukraine, you know, sort of able to take their foot off the, uh, you know, off the clutch a little bit off the break and, you know, you know, really sort of go at it. You know, you had the, the celebrations for Giroud as well. Uh, you know, it was just, it was lovely to see. And to be perfectly honest with you, it was just so much more enjoyable than the, than the match against Portugal or the match against Croatia. It just feels like there's so much that this French team could do right now that this generation of talent could do. Uh, you know, and we're only sort of seeing part of that being tapped into. Okay. JJ, I think I speak for the audience that's listening and watching Camavinga, 
Where's he going? He can't be staying at Ren for too much longer. Is he going to PSG? Is he going to somewhere else in another country? What's Not the PSG, story? He's, he's, he's way too big. Uh, he's way, his potentials. I mean, everybody can see it. He's on everybody's radar. Where do you think he'll end up? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, that, like you said, he's on everyone's radar. There's no shortage of, of clubs who would be interested to take him. But there are not that many clubs out there right now who could pay, you know, what Ren would be looking for, for someone like Camavinga. When you consider that, the, you know, the going rate for someone like Camavinga before Ren qualified for the Champions League group stage, before he was capped at senior level by France, was already probably around 80 million euros. So if you assume that internationally, uh, you know, and, and playing in the, the Champions League is going to add value to that. We're, we're talking about him already passing the 100 million euro price tag mark, uh, you know, not even having hit 20 yet. So there's only a handful of clubs you can really think that could realistically even come into the bidding, uh, you know, at that kind of price, you know, and they're the usual suspects, uh, you know, the likes of Real Madrid, the likes of Barcelona, the likes of Manchester City and the likes of PSG. But if you look at the way that the recent transfer window has just gone, Few of those clubs, if any, are going to be able to stump up that amount for one player. Uh, and if they do, it's likely going to mean that they have to move on one, two, perhaps even three others, uh, you know, to make room for him in the squad. So for me at this moment in time, I, I think he is at the right place uh, to be this season, uh, considering his talent. I think it's going to be very exciting to see him once the Champions League gets going and Ren as well making their debut. Uh, but looking further ahead, uh, you know, I think that you'd have to consider a club like Real Madrid who have, you know, had their names in there since the very beginning to, you know, to sort of have a bit of uh, a bit of a lead on, on most other people. But then again, as we saw with Marco Verratti years ago, when the Emir of Qatar, uh, you know, decides he wants you to play for his club, the likelihood is you're probably going to receive a very attractive offer at some point. So it could be that PSG are planning, uh, you know, to, to spend big on him once they're able to again. But while, coronavirus is is affecting football in the way that it is uh you know it's going to keep some big players out of the market so that it is a potential opportunity for someone to steal a march uh, and pick up arguably the the biggest talent on the on the market right now i got one for you jj jack Grealish on one side tress again on the other <laughs> I'm a right behind ollie Watkins. we just do 150 pay installments and bang that's it They'll I mean, win uh, right who, who wouldn't want to join Villa right now? I mean, it's, exactly. it, it's happy days at Villa Park. Uh, I that, think Camavinga would be delighted to pen a five-year contract. That's why you got that project big picture in the Premier League because Liverpool got scared. They lost 3-7-2, right? Yeah, <laughs> Let's focus sweating. on PSG, JJ. Uh, you said that Friday, they're playing Friday, right? That's just ridiculous. To your point about that Kylian Mbappé was even featured, not just him, but just... You know, any player that has to feature that short. What are we looking at in this PSG game? Uh, what's the preview like? I mean, interestingly, this is going to be one of the, the French games that's able to have fans in the stadium before, uh, you know, the new lockdown measures come into effect. There should be around 5,000 people at the stadium. Uh, and PSG, they've picked up form recently. They had a very slow start to the campaign, lost the two opening matches. Now they're on a run of four consecutive wins. Thumped Angers uh, just before the, the international break came in. Neymar was looking superb in that match. He had Florenzi getting his first goal for PSG. Uh, you know, uh, Mbappe as well was, uh, was particularly key. Uh, but PSG coming into this one with, you know, at least one eye on the Champions League starting next week against Manchester United. 
Uh, no Di Maria, he's suspended, so he'll be well rested before that United clash. Obviously, no international duty for him either. So, uh, you know, PSG have no worries there that he'll be fresh. But everybody else, uh, you know, there's big concerns, a few new signings as well, who Thomas Tuchel is going to have to try to bed in and, and work out if they can play some part against United. Moise Keane, Danilo Pereira, Rafinha all arrived uh, on deadline day. Exciting when you have that many new faces coming into the squad, but, you know, it's also difficult to try and get them to gel when there's a, an international break that immediately follows the transfer window. So, uh, you know, lots to, to watch out for here for, for PSG. And, you know, it's quite a dangerous time for them to be playing Nîmes because Nîmes managed to get a win away at their bitter rivals Montpellier for the first time in absolutely ages. Uh, you know, and that is going to buoy them, have them feeling really confident coming into this one. And everybody looks forward to, to hosting PSG, particularly uh, in the week before Champions League fixtures, because it's an opportunity for, for some of Ligue 1's smaller clubs to, you know, to, to take a nibble at PSG. I know you have one last comment about Ligue 1 and their TV, right? Uh, what's the latest? <laughs> Yes, uh, it's a very, very messy situation. So basically, uh, Ligue 1 is benefiting now from uh, a massive new bumper TV deal, which pushes it up sort of on par with the rest of uh, Europe's leading leagues. Uh, we're talking about sort of 800 million euros per season. And already the, the TV rights holders, Media Pro, uh, Spain-based but uh, Chinese-owned, they're already struggling to, to make the payments. One payment deadline has already been missed at the beginning of October. Uh, and there's now revelations coming out each day about uh, how Media Pro have misjudged the amount of people that would subscribe to be watching League on TV. Uh, and it's it, it's getting very, very messy. And it's obviously very, very worrying for, for French football. There's already, uh, there was already pr plenty of furore that surrounded the, the situation when Canal Plus uh, ended their, their deal prematurely. Uh, you know, being sports are the other uh, broadcaster of the league. So they were sort of left carrying the can uh, by Canal. So, you know, it's very, very unclear at this moment in time, the economic situation for all of the French clubs with regards to the TV rights, you know, are media pro going to continue? Uh, is the, uh, you know, is the, the bidding process going to go to tender again and other people can, can offer to take it off their hands? Uh, meanwhile, you've got clubs who will have probably based their future budgets on all of this money coming in, uh, you know, will be paying their players uh, salaries according to the money that they were expecting to get for the TV rights. Uh, you know, so with times already quite tough uh, for French clubs, you know, they even had to have their own intra-France uh, transfer window earlier this summer to guarantee that some of the smaller clubs with lesser budgets could actually do some business uh, before the other European clubs got involved. Uh, it, 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 it feels quite bleak uh, right now for, for French football and, you know, with the prospect of fewer, if any, fans being in stadiums for the foreseeable future, uh, you know, there are going to be some clubs facing critical moments, uh, you know, and we could perhaps even see some going to the wall as we've unfortunately started to see in the, in the UK. This whole league will be PSG League, oh, I think, by the, uh, by the end of the decade, maybe. Just put the whole thing on YouTube, I think. That will probably help. Thanks. Jonathan Johnson, Paris-based insider, CBS. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon, my friend. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure. Looking forward to the next one. Welcome back, everybody. To wrap things up, we're going to talk about South American World Cup qualifiers. But first, hot of the press. Unbelievable, Jimmy. Talk to us about a certain 
American star who's found a new home. Freddie Adu. What? He's, al- he's alive, Luis. He is. They found him in Sweden, the third division team he just signed. And actually, I'm thinking maybe he'll finally realize his potential. He's going to help us win the World Cup in 2022, Luis. He's going to make it all. He's going to cram all of his potential into 18 months and help us win the World Cup finally and realize all that talent that we could argue that he wasted over so many different years. Uh, I'm excited for him. I don't know. I feel like this is his 16th club in 17 years or whatever since he turned 14 and was doing commercials with Pelé. I don't know. It's it's interesting. I, I can I share a Freddie Adu story with you, please. Is that, is that okay. Okay. Please. So so 2006, the January camp. Okay, all the guys get called in. The European based guys obviously stay in Europe, but but all the domestic guys get called in. It's a big camp, especially for us on the bubble. I was on the bubble to make the World Cup roster in 2006. We're six months away, five months away, four months away actually from getting that the the final roster name. So it's a big camp for a lot of guys. Freddie Adu, who really hadn't been a part of the picture in 2005 gets an invite. And so he must be buzzing. I know he's buzzing. He probably thinks, oh, I made the team. I'm Freddie Adu. I can do whatever I want, whatever. It's fine. He's a good player. I, he's got the talent, no doubt. But we're doing this running drill, okay? And this is when I knew that he would never be a top player, all right? That's my, that's my preface for you. But we're doing this running drill. We got to run as far as we can in 20 minutes. They set up this whole little thing. There's some hills that we could run to in between the fields. And it's, it's, it's hard. Because you're not just competing just to see where you can on a personal best. You're also competing with other guys that are on the bubble too. And it's like, do you start fast? Do you go slow and build up? It's a, it's, it's a mind trip, right? I end up getting fifth because Landon Donovan's a goddamn gazelle and, and uh, Frankie Hader drinks 18 coffees. You know, how can you compete with that much caffeine? So I end up settling in fifth. I'll take it because there was 30 guys there or whatever. Freddie Adu. Okay, we had two assistant coaches, uh, Mooch Meyernick, rest in peace, and Kurt Anolfo. They were just jogging, jogging. Our two assistant coaches who were, you know, mid-50s and like late 40s or whatever, jogging. Freddie Adu in this running thing is behind them. Dude is behind them. Dude, he's on the bubble to go to the world. I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm off the Freddie Adu hype train. Like, I always wanted to believe in Freddie. I wanted to believe in what he was capable of. I played against him enough to see his talent firsthand. Really talented. But when I saw that, I was like, I can't, I can't subscribe to the guy anymore. I can't hit like, I can't rate and review him anymore. I'm out. I'm out on Freddie Adu. So yes, it's a sad story. Yes. I'm sure there's a lot behind it and everything that happened in his buildup and his development and his maturity and evolution and all that. I am happy that he's alive and doing well and continuing to play the beautiful game. But, but I was out on Freddie Adu about 14 years ago. <laughs> but like when you're talking jogging, like it's like, like what, what Dude, speed are we talking? We're here? talking like, like we call it the survival shuffle where you're like barely moving. You know, when you, you know, when you, you do a sprint and yep. you're like sprinting as hard as you can and you want to tell yourself, just don't stop moving when I stop. Yeah, that's that's what he was like. That was his speed. Dude, he's behind our two assistant coaches who are out of shape, dude. Like, no, I can't buy into that. And that's. That's when I was like, I don't want this guy on my team and small sided. Like I'm trying to make the team and I don't want a guy that's dogging it to be on my team. And it, it's just a sad state of affairs because he could have really helped us in a lot of different ways. He got so many chances to make it as well. And he just could never click on and, and push, you know, he could never really push himself to, to try to get better and to maybe look weak and to maybe say, Hey, I'm not good enough. You know, I don't think he ever really addressed that. Maybe he has now over the years, but I don't know, man. It's, it's a sad story. Sad it story. is, but as you mentioned, he now has signed with uh, Sweden's Osterlund, and it's his first destination as a player in, in two years. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Our friend Grant Wall with Blue Wire Pots has a great uh, story about him. So w- maybe we'll listen to that one. But what a story. 
What a story. And I can't wait to jog with you because I want to sprint all the way. <laughs> Those days are long gone, Luis, but I appreciate it. Nah, you look in good shape, my friend. Absolutely. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about the World Cup qualifiers in South America. Arguably, forget arguably, the best games when it comes to the international break. I don't care what anybody says. All right. Ge geography situation, when you think about the altitude of La Paz or the heat of Barranquilla or, you know, Venezuela as well. And just the fact that you have this just tumultuous relationship among so many countries, Argentina, Brazil, of course, Peru, Chile. There's just so many storylines. Then you mix in just the craziness of refereeing, which we saw very well this week. Um, it was just crazy, Jimmy. A lot, a lot of craziness. Neymar um, and Brazil beat Peru yesterday 4-2. The Chilean referee gave a horrific decision to make a 3-2, and after that, the game was over. But Neymar did surpass the great Il Phenomeno Ronaldo to make it 64 goals in second behind Pele 77. Argentina did well beating Bolivia uh, in the altitude. You saw Messi sprinting in the 82nd minute. Talk about, you know, we're talking about jogging and sprinting. Imagine that at 3,500 meters above water. Um, Uruguay lost to Ecuador in Quito. And Ecuador is always a shocking team. They have so much youth and talent, uh, but sometimes they don't deliver halfway through, you know, uh, the marathon campaign that is the World Cup qualifiers. But, you know, they beat Uruguay. So Tavares has a lot to think about. Chile also, you know, got a point just like Peru as well. Venezuela and Bolivia, unfortunately, not well. Uh, but Brazil and Argentina remain the top two without losing a game. And Colombia, four points out of uh, six is pretty good. Any takeaways from the World Cup qualifiers? Any thoughts? What do you think? Oh, I've got a lot of thoughts. First and foremost, I want to say that I love this format for World Cup qualifying. It's all the teams in the, in the continent. Everybody plays home and away. And the top four make the World Cup. You know, let's go. Let's party. I like that. I like that it's that simple and that straightforward. I know it's a little bit more complicated, more countries in Europe and Africa and and the U.S. has a lot of uh, smaller nations that, well, you know, they have to get a fair shake too, but I love the simplicity of it. And I love the fact that the referees swallow their whistles anytime that they can uh, throughout this competition. I saw some tackles that an improving defender absolutely smashed Miguel Almiron, Paraguayan. Carlos Zambrano. Uh, like, he oh, got my. sent off yesterday too. Well, so like, he he should have got sent off the, the game against Paraguay because he uh, yes, he that was a nasty one, but the referee didn't even call it. So you got to respect that. So there's a, there's a lot that goes down to it. Obviously a lot of, um, long time, long term rivalries and history between the countries, both on and off the field. For me, one of the biggest takeaways was Argentina, who before their game in Bolivia and La Paz were complaining about how they never win there. They're whining about the altitude, all this stuff. And they go down a goal and they come back and fight. That's not an Argentina that I recognize, frankly, over the last five, six years. If they went down, you never really saw that. You never really saw them have that spirit. Now, I guess it happened in the World Cup a little bit, but it just was so inconsistent. And now what I think is even more important than that, them coming back, which I think helps the mentality, is that Latara Martinez scored. It's really important that they have another player on their team that's not named Messi to step up. They have the players. Obviously, Iguain was the kind of guy for a while, Aguero, but they never really did it consistently or, 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 when, it was, or when it mattered, right, in three straight finals. So I think if Latara Martinez can really take some more responsibility, that's going to be a very big deal. So I'm excited to see how that continues to play out with Argentina moving forward. I'm sure Messi appreciates that having to be the guy that puts the team on his shoulders all the time. And then if I pivot to Brazil, Neymar, he's just a special player. And I have it written on my board behind me. Will he, will Neymar become the best Brazilian of all time? Obviously scoring that many goals for that, that country in particular 
is incredible. Passing R9. Now I got to play against R9, so I'm a little biased because I think he's one of the best of all time. I would even actually argue that Ronaldinho is better than Neymar. I think Neymar is right behind him, but Ronaldinho at his peak was untouchable. And then, of course, you have Pelé and, and so many other players in Brazil that we could name. Um, so I don't know if he will go down, but I wanted to pose that question to you. Where, where does he fit? Because I think he's only 29. He's going to catch Pelé. He's going to be the leading scorer in Brazilian history. And so where do you put him into that conversation? Because I think there's a lot of people, especially the ones that saw the old Brazilian teams that won all the World Cups back in the day. He wouldn't even crack the top five, Neymar, you know? Yeah, no, it's a very good argument. And listen, I think that Neymar's, uh, you know, resume is also relative to his reputation outside of the pitch as well. And I think that no matter what he does, there's going to be criticism in one way or another. Um, I think it's a different situation when you compare. I think it's going to be almost similar, the argument to when they try and give it to Messi, I think that Neymar needs a World Cup in order to for mm-hmm. people to truly get him. There is no shortage of appraisal when it comes to the fact that he just passed my favorite Brazilian player, Ronaldo, along with Romario. Like, passing that is amazing. I'm with you. I think Ronaldinho is better. Um, and, you know, to get behind uh, and try and chase up to Pele will be quite a thing. But Neymar needs a World Cup. Mm-hmm. Neymar needs a World Cup. He wasn't even part of the squad last summer when Brazil Copa America because of the injury. Obviously, that wasn't his fault. But we need to see more of that. It also, you know, the ultimate target for PSG with him was to win the Champions League. That hasn't happened yet. There is no denying his talents. And to me, I, I'm, I'm a nostalgic person. I go back and see Neymar when he played with Santos. And the things that he would do on the pitch is just ridiculous. And it's just beautiful to see. So sometimes you have to think about the overall trajectory of the player. But, you know, Brazil in in general, to me, are going to top this group. Coach Chiche has just a squad that's experience mixed with youth. I mean, we've talked about Neymar, but what about Roberto Firmino? Felipe Coutinho always ups his levels. Douglas Luiz from Aston Villa had a really good game. Everton Sebelinha is just a star. Somebody that's playing for Benfica right now, recently signed. He's going to be amazing. Gabriel Jesus, uh, you know, is not even mentioned right now as I'm talking. They have two world-class goalkeepers in Allison and Ederson. And Weverton was the one that was starting yesterday. So they just have such a squad. But the question will be, as it is to all these South American nations, can they finally you know, reach the levels of recent European teams and win the World Cup because we haven't seen that in recent years. And Brazil is one of them. They haven't won the World Cup since 2002. So it's been a while. I still see Brazil as number one. I think Neymar is a top five Brazilian player, but he's not better than Ronaldinho. He's no better than Ronaldo. He's no better than Romario, I think. Uh, you know, but what do you think? Where does Neymar stand? I know that we got a lot of Neymar stands and a lot of Neymar haters. I'd love to hear the comments, right? No, it would be great. I mean, for me, I think you put the tweet out, the one that I read about how Neymar didn't end up completing this goal, but he dribbled through like five guys and did something so beautiful. It's something that no other player would risk. And I think that needs to be taken into consideration. Also the fact that in some weird way, Ronaldinho is oddly celebrated for his off the field antics. But yet Neymar is persecuted for the same types of things. And we could argue Ronaldinho was actually doing worse stuff, you know. Uh, well, it depends on how you define worse stuff. But, but they both have these kind of off-the-field personas. And it seems like Neymar's is, is more shown in a bad light. And Ronaldinho's like, ah, he's a party guy. That's what makes him special, you know. And he seems to get that free pass, even though he spent time in jail recently, probably uh, doing some stuff. Bigger conversation. But I would say that 
it's interesting because Neymar is a special player and, and, you know, there is a lot of, he gets a lot of heat and and I don't think it's necessarily fair. And he handled, he handles it. I think pretty well, all things considered. I don't know if I can handle that heat on a consistent basis. Now, of course he, he brings some of it upon himself given his diving antics, which people don't like. I think diving's part of the game. I don't know if you, how far you want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, He might take it a little bit too far, but he is a special player. And I think that speaks to your point that, that he's doing things that other players aren't even trying. And that needs to not be d- diminished in any way. That should be celebrated. That's, that's what makes him him. And to take that away from him, he wouldn't want to play anymore. And I think we miss a little bit of that creativity in the game. And so I'm not necessarily like 100% Neymar stand, but I, I, I would like to say that he, he has something that a lot of players don't. And, and that should make him or warrant conversation as one of the top five Brazilians of all time. Yeah, it should be celebrated. I completely agree, which is why I go back to the Santos-Neymar. My only argument to your Ronaldinho comparison is that most of the time Ronaldinho would finish off what he just did. Sometimes Neymar doesn't do it, but point. There's, there's no denying Neymar's talents and abilities. What do you think? Anyway, that's all the time we had, Jimmy. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Jimmy will be a regular of Kegolasso podcast. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can see and hear more from him on Twitter, social, and, of course, our CBS squad. Jimmy, you the man. Yeah, thanks, Luis. That was a lot of fun. I want to thank Jimmy Conrad and Jonathan Johnson for joining us today. Tomorrow, we return with our weekend preview. We're going to cover a lot. So make sure that you follow us and stay tuned. We'll see you next time.